start uh, with the word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity uh, that we've had uh, to gather in worship uh, as a fledgling church planting work and to gather on Tuesday nights for the last few months to consider the topic of worship, to talk about um, what your word has to say and to have our own understanding um, stretched and developed and to have our hearts uh, enthralled with uh, a longing to worship you in spirit and in truth. And, and we do truly pray that these Bible studies uh, that we have on the subject of worship would not just be uh, academic explorations, but would truly uh, work their way into the way that we uh, as a church and we as believers worship you, whether it's uh, corporately, whether it's as families, or whether it's as individuals. We pray tonight as we bring this study to a close and consider the subject of the Lord's Day, that you would bless us, help us to um, speak the, the whole counsel of God, but not to go beyond your word in any way. And I pray that all of us would just be encouraged by the time spent uh, in the scriptures tonight. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, as I said, we're wrapping up our study on worship tonight and looking at the subject of the Lord's Day. And just to make sure everyone's on the same page, I'm going to be talking tonight about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. I'm meaning the exact same thing. So don't get too tripped up by the terminology because I'll probably switch back and forth between terms. Um, but as we're talking about Sunday, we're talking about uh, the Lord's Day. We, we, we're talking about this in the, as the context for our worship. For those of you who have been in our study um, from the beginning of this fall, you know that we kind of started off introducing worship as a whole and then talking about some of the principles uh, that, we, that we use uh, for worship. And then what we've really done since then is just work through the different elements of worship, singing, reading of scripture, uh, preaching of the word, um, prayer, the sacraments, those types of things. What we're talking about tonight is not one particular element of worship, but rather kind of, kind of the stage on which those elements are, are played out. So this is, like, like it says, the, the, the context for our worship. And uh, as we come to this topic, this is one of those big themes in scripture. If you do a word search, you're going to find hundreds of passages that talk about the Sabbath or that talk about um, the Lord's Day and worship. Um, and it's something that is woven not just in certain parts of Scripture, but in, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the law, and the prophets, and the epistles, and the history. I mean, all the way through to Revelation. This is a theme that's woven throughout. And as we'll see tonight, actually has its roots in creation and finds its consummation uh, in our resting with God in heaven. So it's a big idea. And so I just want to say that so that you, you don't get your hopes too high and think that we're going to talk about everything that could be talked about in regards to this. This is going to be a 40-minute you know, flyby kind of thing. I do have some resources to point you to if you're curious and want to kind of study more. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is really kind of three things. One, I want to just take us through a few of those passages that talk about this subject of the Lord's Day or the Sabbath and just kind of note what some of the biblical features are for this subject. How does the Bible speak about the Sabbath? What should we observe as we look at some of these passages? And then from that, I really want to kind of take a step back and try and pull some of those threads together and say, okay, what's a, 
What's a biblical framework for thinking about this? What's kind of a, if we're going to sum up what the Sabbath is about and how we are to approach the Sabbath and how we're to think about the Sabbath, you know, what would that look like? And so we'll kind of do that. Um, and then finally, and, and most briefly, we'll just kind of talk a little bit about what the Lord's Day um, should look like for Kirk of the Plains, for us as a body as we gather in worship, um, for us as, as families, and even for each of us as individual Christians. So um, we'll work through some of those things uh, tonight, and uh, we're going to be spending uh, this first chunk will probably be the longest chunk, and then it'll get shorter after that. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to um, Exodus 31. Uh, There are a lot of passages, especially in the Old Testament and in the law, that talk about the Sabbath, um, but a good kind of summary passage that brings a lot of things together is found in Exodus 31. So if you want to look at that chapter, we'll read verses 12 to 18, and then just begin to kind of note some of the features that are here, and we'll look at some other passages as well. Um, So Exodus 31, verses 12 to 18. Um, Would someone be able to read those verses for us? Sure. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Okay, thanks. Um, There's a lot in there about the Sabbath, where it comes from, what it's for, um, how we are to observe it. Uh, But I want to just observe a few, again, of these biblical features uh, of the Sabbath. The first thing that we see pops out at us in the first and the last verse um, of this passage. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses... And then look at verse 18. And he, this is God, the Lord, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The first thing I want us to see is that the Sabbath is something that is instituted by God. This is not just a man-made thing or kind of a, a narrow cultural thing. This is something that God himself puts in place and puts in place... Um, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now when you look at even just this passage, you can probably think about the Ten Commandments and other passages you know from the Bible. Um, What does God root the Sabbath in? Where, where, Where does he see it beginning, if I can put it that way? I heard... Mumbling. <laughs> Creation? Yeah? Yeah? 
So even in this passage, um, look at verse 17. The Lord says, it's a sign, the, the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Keep your finger here, but just flip back a few pages to Exodus 20. This is the version of the Ten Commandments that we that we usually read. And when it's talking about um, the fourth commandment, it's actually talking about the Sabbath. And it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But, on the, seven, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's the command, the fourth commandment there. But then it shifts from commands to actually kind of giving the background to this command. And it says in verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in a lot of these passages where the Sabbath is, is introduced and mentioned and commanded, it's, it's linked to God's work of creation and to the fact that God himself, after he had worked for six days, creating all things, took a day to rest. And as it says in, in Exodus 31, and was refreshed. Now that's a, that's a striking thing that God himself would be refreshed, as it were, and that he would um, see a need for that. Maybe that says something about how much we need this as well. But before we get too much into that, um, what else is the Sabbath tied to? Not only God's work of creation, but also... Well, it is a sign. We'll talk about that in a moment. But um, let me ask this. Where is the... What's that? It is tied to rest. Um, Look at Deuteronomy 5. This is the other place where the Ten Commandments are given. And in general, they're very similar. But there are a few differences which are are interesting. And one of those is with the Fourth Commandment. Could somebody read Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15? Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, so the command is the same between Deuteronomy and Exodus, but the reason behind it is is different. What 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 is he the reason he gives here in Deuteronomy? Yeah. 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 In the Old Testament, the the picture of redemption that's given is God bringing them out of Egypt and bringing freeing them out of out of slavery, which is kind of pointing forward to what what Christ does on an even larger scale, freeing us from our sin, freeing us from our slavery and captivity, uh, bringing us out of 
the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, right? Um, and so when you bring these things together, you see that, that the Lord's Day is something that's instituted by God, but it has its roots in, in what God has done, both in his work of creation and in his work of redemption. Now again, right now we're just kind of noticing these themes. We'll tie some of this together in a moment. Um, Shri mentioned another thing that is characteristic of the way that the Bible talks about the Sabbath, and that is it's a, it's a sign or it's a, a mark of God's covenant people. Um, could somebody read uh, in Exodus 31, verses 13, and then verses 16 through 17? Exodus 31, and then verses 13, and then 16 through 17. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And then 16. Mm -hmm. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day... Abstain from work and rested. Okay. Okay. So you see this language of, of, of the Sabbath being a sign between God and his people. What is it that, that the Sabbath is meant to, to signify? I think in the case of God, you know, he created and then he rested. But in the case of the people, I mean, they have been... Slippery, then they found there's a rescue, there's mm -hmm. a different type of rest. Mm -hmm. and we, God didn't rest because He was tired, He just right. was modeling, you know, that there's that. But in the case of the slaves, they they went through a lot, yeah. Of, so it was really a relief, a, a rest, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of rest takes on a whole new significance when you've been enslaved for 400 years, um, yeah. What else do you see, even even just here in these in these verses? Oh, and this is so specifically this is the, the Lord that I sanctify you. Yeah, yeah. Some translations have there. This is at the end of verse 13, um, that the Lord sanctifies you or, or makes you holy. So there's a sense in which we are we are resting from our work, um, being reminded and reinforced that God is the one who is working in us and working on us and actually sanctifying us and making us holy. Um, so there's a significance there to that. Um, fourth thing I want to notice, and this is probably uh, this is this is one of the big themes that comes up again and again and again as you read through these passages. On the Sabbath, um, and that is that keeping the Sabbath means turning from the things of this world and turning toward the things of God. Turning from the things of the world and turning toward the things of God. There's kind of a two sides of this coin kind of thing. Another way we can think about that is that the Lord's Day or the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath is really concerned with two things. It's about resting and it's about rejoicing. Look at verse 15 of Exodus 31. Um, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a day of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. 
Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Um, now that last part is probably what grabs your attention. And we even have uh, examples in, uh, in the Pentateuch of you know, people who did work on the Lord's day and they were put to death. Uh, now those are, those are tough texts, difficult passages. Um, one of the things that we do see coming from the Old Testament into the New Testament is um, that, uh, that some of these things are dealt with differently. Even, for example, something like adultery. In the Old Covenant, if you commit adultery, what's the, what's the consequence for that according to the Levitical law? You're to be stoned. Um, when you come into the New Testament, we have Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. There's someone who has committed those very sins. And yet what is the punishment that is given for that? He's called to be excommunicated or cut off from the people of God, cut off from, from the church. There's a, a kind of shift from execution to excommunication. Um, now I'm not trying to say that's true in every sense or a situation, but part of what we're seeing in, in the Old Covenant here, in the Old Testament, um, in terms of the severity with which uh, Sabbath breaking, for example, or some of these other sins were dealt with, is that someone who is profaning the Sabbath is seen to be profaning God and profaning the covenant and is therefore to be cut off from God's people. And at this point, God's people are actually a, a nation. They're a country, not just... God's people as, as we are dispersed throughout the nations. And so that takes on a very radical form. In the New Testament, um, it looks different. So, so what I, the reason I'm saying all this is I don't want you to hear me saying, you know, we should go around stoning people or campaigning for legislation to have, you know, execution if people are doing some of these things. But what you do see consistently uh, is that sin is still a serious thing and must be dealt with. And part of how we deal with that is by looking at it in our own hearts. So just want to kind of address that. There's more that could be said there. And like I said, I have some resources I could point you to on that. But I want us to focus on really the first part of that verse. Because that's this is really the idea I want us to give. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Resting is the first thing we are to do when it comes to observing the Lord's day, celebrating Sunday, um, celebrating the Sabbath. And that idea of resting has to do with obviously resting from our, from our work, from our jobs, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Again, resting is turning away from the things of the world in order to turn toward the things of God. So the things of the world, when I, when I say that, sometimes we use that language we mean turning away from sinful things, right? Um, but work is not a bad thing, is it? Work is a, is a good thing. It's actually instituted in creation before the fall. Um, but God says even before the fall happens, there's work and there's rest. That's a biblical pattern that exists before sin even enters into the picture. So when I'm talking about turning away from the things of this world, obviously, yes, turn away from sin. But more specifically, it's saying we're, we are caught up in all the affairs of life, and we have houses, and we have cars, and we have families, and we have you know, all these things that we want to do, all these things that we have to do, and try, I've never found an American yet, or anyone really, who doesn't feel like their life is just this 
crazy rat race where things are going super fast and there's all sorts of things coming at them and we just have a lot going on. We're, we're, we're busy, busy people. Um, the Sabbath is a call to rest, even the, from those good things to say, you know, this is a day that is holy, that is set apart. And so we are to, to direct our attention away from those things. Now, this is where, if you've heard teaching on the Sabbath or you've been in churches that maybe talk about the Sabbath, you may have some red flags going up. Because the temptation of our hearts is to fixate on sometimes what that resting means or looks like in an almost legalistic way. If you're trying to think of an example, the Pharisees are the ones that probably pop to mind, where they not only focus on this idea of resting, but actually go beyond God's word and had, had all these very narrow, specific, strict laws about how many steps you can take from your house and how much you can wait, you can pick up and how much you can't pick up and you know all these kinds of intricacies. And they, they, they kind of reduce the Sabbath to this idea of seeing what you can't do, seeing what you don't do. That is part of what's at play here. Um, you read Exodus, you read... Deuteronomy, you read other passages in the Old Testament, and this idea of resting from your labors is very important. But it's it's only done as the first step. What's the second step? We'll look at verse 16. Could somebody read Exodus 31:16 for us? Does anybody have the um, NASB or NIV here? The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as the lasting covenant. Yeah. Both of those translations, uh, I think, use the right word when they talk about celebrating the Sabbath. Um, that's wrapped up in this idea of, of observing, but I think observing to us sounds like a cold kind of word. Celebrating is really what's at the heart here. Um, we rest so that we might rejoice. We cease from our labors so that we might focus on worshiping God, communion with him, delighting in him and his people and his word. So this is where the Sabbath, again, connects with everything else we've been talking about the last few months. We talk about prayer. We talk about hearing the word preached. We talk about the sacraments. We talk about singing, praise. When does all that happen? Where does all that happen? It happens in the context of worship. And God actually sets apart in time and space a context for us to engage in those things, to enter into those things, to delight in those things. So just to review what we've talked about so far, and we're almost at the end of the first section, uh, and then it gets, it gets faster from here. The Sabbath is instituted by God. We also see that the Sabbath is, is linked to God's works of creation and his works of redemption. Thirdly, we see that the Sabbath is a, is a sign or a mark of God's covenant people. And then fourthly, we see that keeping the Sabbath means turning from the things of this world and turning toward the things of God. In other words, keeping the Sabbath is about resting and it's about rejoicing. Those those two things. And the last thing I want us to see is what Christ brings out so clearly in his own ministry. And that is that the Sabbath was made for man and is to be used for acts of necessity and acts of mercy. 
Um, flip to, to uh, Mark chapter 2. One of the great things about the Gospels is they'll, they'll oftentimes tell the same stories from slightly different angles, and so you'll get different things drawn out. So I want to just read a few verses from Mark 2, and then we're going to spend most of our time in, in, in Matthew's Gospel. This is the same event or story that they're talking about, but there's a phrase here I want us to read. Could someone read uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Okay. Now the he that's speaking here is Jesus, right? Does anybody remember the context uh, in which this, this saying takes place? And who's there watching them? The Pharisees, right? And so they kind of swoop down on Jesus and his disciples and start saying, wait a minute, you're not, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus comes back with this stunning statement where he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that's a... That's a power-packed phrase, and there's a lot to be um, looked at there. But I think one thing it draws our attention to is that there's not just an external element to this, right? If you're reading just Exodus 20, it can look like, okay, Sabbath observance really means I've got these boxes to make sure that I'm not working, my my oxen aren't working, my you know the sojourners aren't working. Okay, if all these are teched, then... We're keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, no, there's more to this than what you're seeing. And if you want to understand what the Sabbath is, you have to understand who I am and what the Sabbath is for. That's going to play into what Sabbath observance looks like. Now, to shed more light on this, we can flip over to Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 12. You know, when we write stories or histories, we put things in chronological order. You know, this happened first, and then that happened, and then that happened, and then that happened. The Gospels don't do that. Uh, the Gospel writers follow um, what would have been typical in the ancient world in terms of their pattern for writing these stories, and they arrange things thematically. So what we find in Matthew's Gospel is that he's taken two stories uh, about Christ and the Sabbath and, and put them next to each other to kind of help make something clear to us. Um, so I want to read first the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 12, and then we'll look at uh, the next section. But um, could someone read Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8 for us? At that time, Jesus went through the green fields of the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the, of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guilty? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Now let's look here in a moment for a moment at, at what the disciples are doing and what the Pharisees are saying. Okay, and that'll help to put Christ's words in context. Um, what are the disciples actually doing in this story that makes the Pharisees so angry? Well, they were hungry, so they walk through a wheat field and just grab some wheat and pop it in their mouth. Yeah. Eat it. Yeah. And what are the how do the Pharisees respond to that? Well, they jump in and say, "You're breaking the Sabbath." Because you're you're working on the Sabbath, right? You're not you're not living up to really their version of the Old Testament law. Um, and Jesus comes back and basically challenges them. He draws in the example of of, of David and and uh, the the priest. Um, but what he's what he's really saying to the Pharisees is that um, they have become so fixated again on. The, the checklist of what resting looks like and what the don'ts are of that, that they have um, really gone beyond scripture. And they've defined work down to the, the narrowest, smallest degree in a way that makes it really ridiculous. Because what's happening here is not that Jesus' disciples are trying to earn some extra cash by harvesting this field or something, or trying to get a head start on the next week by you know getting on with the harvest. They're, they're plucking heads of grain to eat as they go on their way, listening to Christ teach. These are what uh, would have been called acts of necessity. It would be like saying, you know, well, keeping the Lord's Day means, you know, not working, right? That's pretty clear from, from the Ten Commandments. That's pretty clear from other passages in the Bible. Um, did you pour yourself a cup of coffee on Sunday morning? Because that would qualify as working. Like it's it's getting to that kind of a, a level or that kind of a degree. And Christ challenges them on that and says, you say this is breaking the Sabbath, but it's nothing of the kind. Um, and actually what they're doing, as he says, is they're missing what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now we'll return to that idea in just a minute. But let's look at this second story because it's kind of the, the other side of this. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. He went on from there, this is Jesus, and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Again, there's a lot in that passage as well, but I want you to see the the two different attitudes to the Sabbath that are at play. Because this is going to help us as we kind of put together a biblical framework for this. Um, how are the Pharisees approaching the Sabbath based on this story? They will not even do anything that is good. Mm-hmm. Because 
the Sabbath was more important than doing good. Right. According to the Pharisees. Yeah. They're kind of pitting these things against each other in some way. Or an excuse to not do good. Or an excuse to not do good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you, especially if you think of the law as reflecting the character of God, you know, He's revealing Himself to us in His law. You know, God is a, a God who is compassionate and gracious. We see that in the Old Testament as well as the New. You know, and then so for them to interpret the law in the way that they did, you know, to not care about a human being in the way mm-hmm. Christ did in showing that, they're, they're really going against using the law to do something that God didn't intend it to do. Right. So. Right. Right. It makes you think of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in another passage where they're kind of giving themselves an excuse for not caring for their parents, you know, because of some technicality about tithing. And Jesus is saying, you're not really understanding either of those commands. You should have done this without giving up that. Um, so Jesus is, is challenging their their Pharisaism, their legalism, but also their hypocrisy. Notice how strong the hypocrisy is. And Matthew just brings it out to the forefront, doesn't he? You know, they ask this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And then after he has answered them and healed this man, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So they put themselves up as if they are the defenders of the Sabbath. And yet this story closes with them conspiring how they might kill the Lord of the Sabbath. You see the disconnect that's there? They say that they love God's law, and yet they're breaking it left, right, and center in their own hearts and their own intentions and their own desires. And there's a warning for us as we think about how to keep the Sabbath, how to think about the Sabbath, how to approach the Sabbath. Because the dangers that they fell prey to are things that we can fall prey to as well. Okay, so the features that we've noted here so far. The Sabbath is instituted by God. It's linked to God's work of creation and redemption. It's a mark or a sign of God's covenant people. It has to do with resting and rejoicing, that is, turning away from the things of the world and turning toward the things of God. And then lastly, that the Sabbath was made for man and is to be used for both acts of necessity and acts of mercy, as the situation um, would dictate. There's more we could say about that, but let's try and pull some of these things together as we uh, kind of come to a to a close here. Um, before I do that, any questions or comments? I don't want to be blowing too fast through this. Okay, so what's a biblical framework for this? If we're going to summarize and distill these different features and things that we've said, some of these passages that we've looked at, and like I said, there are many, many more uh, that you could that you could consider. How would we how would we bring this together? Well, I think a good text uh, that does that is actually found in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58. Specifically, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read this. Listen to this, uh, Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. This is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, 
If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I think if I were to pick one phrase to summarize what the Sabbath is supposed to be, rightly celebrated, rightly understood, rightly practiced, it would be found in that phrase in verse 13, that the Sabbath is to be called a delight. The Lord's day is a day of delight. The Lord's day is a holy day. Now, this is we're right around the holidays right now. Do you guys know where the word holiday comes from? It comes from the words holy day. Um, the Lord's Day, Sunday, the Sabbath, is a holiday. It's Christmas and Easter and your birthday and the 4th of July and everything all rolled into one. And so as we come to worship God on his day, we're not just coming with a kind of formalism. We're not just coming with a pharisaical eye. We're coming like a child on Christmas morning. Because God has given gifts to his church and he gives them center stage on his day. And we gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. And we see what God is talking about here. That if, if, they, if they turn away from their, their own concerns, their own sins, their own pleasures and conversations and all of these things, to call the Sabbath a delight, to make the holy day of the Lord honorable, to treat it like it is, as a special thing, as a precious thing, Verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Delighting in the Lord's day leads us to delighting in the Lord himself. Honoring the Sabbath is a way of honoring the Lord of the Sabbath. And God says, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, one of the books that... I think I would recommend to anyone kind of thinking through this topic is, is by uh, Joseph Pipa called The Lord's Day. Really creative title there. Uh, but it's, it's a helpful book, and he goes into much greater depth through a lot of these passages and kind of fleshing out some of the nuts and bolts of what this all means and looks like. But uh, I liked uh, this quote that he had in his introduction. He said, Historically, the purpose of Sabbatarianism, which is the practice of the Sabbath, the purpose of observing the Sabbath was not to create a legalistic entanglement that stifles people, but to free the people of God for the wonderful privilege of worshiping God and enjoying Him. The Sabbath and its observance really is like a park, not only to be protected, but also to be used and enjoyed according to God's purposes. He talks earlier in the book about how the Lord's Day is is like a city that has a magnificent park. I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but if you've seen like Central Park or something, this just amazing place where anyone can gather to find rest and refreshment and delight. That's like what the Lord's Day is. And some people want to kind of um, either just let that be neglected and let it be overgrown with weeds and broken down because they have no delight in the Lord's Day. They have no concern in the Lord's Day. They don't even think about it. They don't. They think it doesn't even apply or connect to our lives anymore. And other people can be like the Pharisees and want to put up these walls around the park to keep it safe, but then it's not fulfilling its function. A park is meant to be enjoyed and delighted in and lived in, and, and that's what the Lord's Day is to be like. If you have your hymnals near you, look, look back at that hymn that we sang to begin with. 
verse 3 that we sang. You are a port protected from storms that round us rise. A garden intersected with streams of paradise. You are a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand. From you, like Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. This is singing about the the day of rest and gladness, the Lord's Day, Sunday, our day of worship, our day of rest, our day of rejoicing. This is the picture we are to have, that it's this oasis in the midst of a desert. It's this harbor in the midst of a storm. It's It's a high peak. If you've been to Colorado and you've looked out over the landscape and you can just see for miles, that's what the Lord's Day is. That's what the Lord's Day is to be about. So if we were to to bring this to just a few words, the Lord's Day is to be a time of rest, is to be a time of worship, and is to be a time of renewal. It's to be a time of rest and that we do put a stop to our normal work. And I think this goes beyond. You can see even in this passage in Isaiah 58, Jesus or the Lord says not just about stopping your your daily work, you know, your day job, but even even doing your own pleasure, even even idle conversation. We can be tempted to fill Sunday with our own hobbies and activities and events and the things that we like to do. And those can be good things. But again, when we talk about turning away from the things of this world, we don't just mean turning away from the sins. Even the, the good things God has given need to have a proper place. And the Lord's Day is a day that God has given to, to, for us to rest. And that resting is really a kind of a clearing of the deck so that we can focus our minds and engage our hearts in worship. So we are to rest, but that rest is to lead us into this rejoicing, into this worship, and ultimately into that renewal. Remember Exodus 31 where it talks about the Lord resting from his labors on the seventh day and being refreshed? That's what we are to experience as well. That's what God is describing in Isaiah 58:14. Uh, you shall take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. So that's the perspective that we should bring as we think about the Lord's Day, as we think about the Sabbath. So now, what are some implications for that? Just real briefly, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be intentionally brief here, both because we're almost out of time, but also because this is something that I think all of us need to really kind of think through and work through and pray through throughout our lives. Um, just like with any of the other commandments, When you talk about the fourth commandment, keeping the Lord's day, we are all going to stray and fall short regularly. And we need to kind of come up against the word of God again and again. You think about, you know, um, do not uh, commit adultery, you know, lusting or wanting other things or other people. Those are things that we might struggle with. We have to be corrected and, and reminded of those again and again. It's the same way with the Lord's day. So really what I want to do is just kind of mention a few things and then give you some tools that you can maybe take home and use as families, as individuals, as couples, to kind of pray through and work through and think about how can we better keep the Lord's Day and be more faithful in that. But just a few thoughts in terms of what keeping the Lord's Day means for the body. And I'm speaking here, you know, uh, particularly uh, in terms of Kirk of the Plains, we're a young church plant. What's, what's, what's our view of that? Well, we do want the Lord's Day to be honorable to be set apart. We want to make it easy 
for all of us who attend to make the Lord's Day holy. And part of what that means is that we gather and worship. And we try to have rich and rejoicing worship that we can participate in. Right now, we're just worshiping, worshiping once a month in the evening. But long term, the hope is to worship every, every Sunday, every Lord's Day, and actually to begin and end every Lord's Day with worship. Uh, it's difficult if you say, well, the Lord's Day is about spending that day in time with God, and then we you know, leave a huge chunk of the day just kind of open. We just naturally fill that up. And so sometimes being in a church where you do have morning and evening worship can help to make that easier and more natural. And so at Kirk of the Plains, we want to, to set that time aside in our worship. We also want to be talking about this and teaching about this as it comes up in the Word of God and just drawing our hearts and minds to this again and again because it is a place of delight. And it's also it's the context where we find so many of God's gifts and blessings. Um, keeping the Lord's Day as families. There's lots of things that we can do and should be doing uh, as families, especially if you're you know, head of a house, parents. How do you structure your week? Are you so busy that by, by the time Sunday morning comes around, everyone's bleary-eyed and exhausted and, and running on nothing? Or do you try and wind things down on Saturday night? Do you try and get to bed early enough that you can be rested and refreshed to worship God on his day. Um, are, you, are you doing family worship regularly throughout the week so that Sunday is not this odd break where we're now going to do all our Jesus stuff, but where it's instead the natural culmination. You've been building to this for a week. You know, Christmas, you guys realize Christmas isn't for a couple of weeks yet, and yet all of us have been getting ready for Christmas for probably a couple of weeks already. And you can look around this room, and there's decorations and you know, Christmas drinks, and we have all these ways of kind of building the anticipation. Do we do that for this holiday? Do we do that for the Lord's Day? Do we do that for Sunday? Or does it sneak up on us? Those are things we can think about as families, and it, it's true as individuals as well. We need to be thinking about um, our own relationship with the Lord. Are we are we keeping that strong and constant so that Sunday is is the crowning jewel, the, the, the cherry on top. If you like cherries, I don't like cherries, but <laughs> the idea is there. Um, those are some things to think through. Uh, I have a, a handout, which I want to just send home with you guys. I want to read through these, but um, like I said, this is not something for us to kind of talk about all here tonight. We don't have time for that. And I think it'd be more profitable for us just to take these things home read through these questions, look at some of the scriptures here, pray through them, and really consider, are there things that we can or should be doing um, differently or, or better in terms of uh, observing, celebrating the Lord's Day? You could just pass some of those back and around. And I think enough for at least every adult, not every person. I've, I've broken these up into uh, questions about our resting and questions about our rejoicing. And uh, there's other questions we could add to this. My hope is that none of us would be able to read this unscathed. This should convict all of us at probably multiple points about ways in which we're, we've not kept this perhaps as we should. Um, there are questions that you may you know, have issues with, but I just encourage you to read through them, look at some of the scriptures here, think about it, pray about it, talk about it. Let's all seek to grow in this. But let me just read through these, just 
Just listen to some of these. And think about them for yourself, how you would answer them. How do you spend your time on the Lord's Day? Do you clear your schedule so that nothing can interfere with gathering to worship and rejoicing with God's people? Do you spend your Sundays answering emails, finishing work projects, or putting in hours at the office? Are your Sundays full of things like cleaning, yard work, home repair projects, or homework? Do you structure your week so that you don't have to worry about going shopping or running errands on a Sunday? Do you make a habit of encouraging others to break the Sabbath by eating out or doing business on the Lord's Day? What kind of conversations do you have on the Sabbath? Is there any difference between the things you talk about on Sunday and the things you talk about during the rest of the week? How do you spend your Sundays after the morning service? Do you fill up your time with your own hobbies and interests? Or are you taking time to focus on the Lord? Are you keeping the Sabbath externally while perhaps rebelling internally? Do you carefully monitor other people's Sabbath-keeping while being blind to your own hearts or harboring private sins? Do you focus on the do-nots of the Sabbath while neglecting the do's? Do you take pride in your Sabbath observance? Or do you honestly long for the Sabbath and delight in celebrating it? Do you hunger for union and communion with God and his people on the Lord's Day? Do you view the Lord's Day as a stepping stone to eternity? That's a, that's a phrase that um, was used by the Puritan Richard Baxter. He said each, each Lord's Day, each Sunday, is like a stepping stone to eternity. It's, it's leading us into that rest that we have in Christ, that union and communion that we have with him. Um, just some things to think about, like I said, but hopefully that helps us uh, as a church, as, a, as individuals, to... Um, to grow in our in our understanding of and, and love for the Lord's Day. It is a delight, and I hope it's something that causes us to delight in the Lord himself. Um, let me just close this in a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you for um, your word and for what it teaches us about this tremendous gift that you have given. Um, not just a, a list of rules or... Um, uh, a way for us to, to fail yet again, but truly uh, a wonderful gift that is to be a delight to us, and that is to be a time of rest, of rejoicing, of worship, of refreshment. We pray that all of us would um, fight to keep the Sabbath holy and fight to keep you at the center of it. Um, we know that this is a, a, a place of blessing. This truly is an oasis in the desert, and we pray that we would return to it again and again and again. Uh, we've only scratched the surface of all that the Sabbath means and um, all that it gives to us, but we, we pray that we would grow in this, in our understanding of this, and in our love for it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um. So, do you want to pray no, and then close? No, go ahead. Okay, if you have your hymn, just look at 393. We're going to close.